Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Lamentations 5. And last time the message was titled Spiritual Regret. And that was a fascinating look at, listen, you you see the saints and and people who aren't saints, you know, in the historical works of the Bible over the years, you see how they both handled things differently when there was tragedy. This was no different in in Israel's history, in Jerusalem's history. We're looking at the 6th century BC. Babylonians are taking over the world. Uh, they've trounced the Assyrians in the Battle of Karshemish in 605 B.C. They start to head south, and you know the story. We've been covering this for a few months. But Prophet Jeremiah is in the midst of this. He's suffering with the people. He's chronicling. He's writing down what he sees. So some of, we, some of what we read is a little harsh, but it's, it's, he's a historian, And then there's times where he's getting a message from God and he's sharing it with the people. There's times that he's praying. So it's kind of neat how you have to decipher as you go through the verses, well, what's happening? Is this a chronicling? Is this a prayer? And, you know, the longer you read the Bible and you pray about it, God gives you the insight to what he's doing in this time period. Some people had some spiritual regret, right? Um, Well, based on all the trauma, a lot of the people did turn to God, which is wonderful which is what should happen. Um, We should do that normally, but some unfortunately have to receive hard life lessons before they actually humble themselves, turn to God, and decide to follow him. We talked about the aftermath of war. war. We talked about PTSD. We talked about how the brain handles trauma, and we went through the different portions of the brain and the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system responses. So it was really, really fascinating. This morning, we're going to cover chapter 5, and I've titled that Restoring the Years. And it's beautiful because it's the end of the book, and we covered five chapters. They were explosive. They were powerful. People asked me some questions about them. Um, I've had, as we're looking at Jeremiah and the tragedy of the Jerusalem inhabitants, I have people coming up to me after service during the week telling me about their personal trials and tragedy. It's, it's an interesting thing, and I know it's a worldly term, so it, it's sort of scriptural, but not really. Sort of like the misery loves company. Okay, that's not in the Bible. That's a worldly term. But when you see somebody else suffering, sometimes you feel more comfortable when you're suffering, right? They're simpatico with you. You can talk to them. You can share experiences. So it's amazing through this book that was written some 2,600 years ago in 2020, I got people coming up saying, hey, I'm going through a tragedy and this book is ministering to me. So this is the last chapter before we go into the book of Revelation. Uh, but we're going to look at our own lives as well as we go through this and say, yeah, you know, I have, I have issues too. I have deep-seated fears and thoughts and concerns. I've been praying about something for months and waiting for an answer from the Lord. So, you know, it would be a shame for a church to teach the word, but also not teach the applications, the the everyday applications in our lives. We're going to look at this in three parts. So jumping in in chapter 5, I'm going to read chapters, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. 
Jeremiah says, remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, which would be, we'd be the Babylonians. And our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. Right? Very expressive, very visceral, very emotional. Right? And I love that about Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet because when you are ministered to by a clergy or, you know, a Christian brother or sister or even someone in the scripture, you want to know that they're human. You want to know that they have the same ups and downs as you do. So he's crying out to God with this situation. Verse 4, he goes, We even pay for the water we drink, and our wood comes at a price. They pursue us at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones, boys staggering under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. And that's where we're going to leave it for the first part. So one out of three is he's asking God to review the situation. The Babylonians, just like in any war, you know, two sides are fighting. One side is victorious and they're not often very nice to the people they conquered. Right. You read history as I do wars and, and you, you find this. It's a little depressing what we're reading, but but look at the applications. So their homes were taken, their property, their vineyards, their money. Um, and this is important because there's a, a teaching, the prosperity gospel, that teaches, and it's usually, uh, I call it Americentric or Eurocentric. A prosperity gospel is a teaching that basically says if you have enough faith, you'll always be healthy, you'll always be wealthy, everything's going to be great. That's usually taught by people who are very wealthy off of their followers who pretty much parasite off of them and they're insulated they live in gated communities they have not a care in the world and there's people in this church that have come to me that said I, I came out of that and your teaching is so refreshing because an average person like me that's not reflective of the life I live or what the Bible says they can never teach a book like this because they're always jazzing people up and that's not reality and that's not biblical we go through things as believers so then what happens is people who are in that type of movement, if their lives aren't perfect, like the guy preaching, they feel like God forgot them. They feel like maybe they're not even saved. That's what false doctrine does to people. You see what I'm saying? So he's likening him or themselves to orphans and widows. And again, I think even in his prayers, he's a little upset that God's not moving fast enough. And folks, we've been there. I don't know, I could be wrong, but maybe it was a little bit of a dig. Lord, uh, we're orphans. Like, have you abandoned us? That's what it feels like. But he comes to faith. He goes from feelings to faith. Verses 4 through 6, um, they taxed their wood, they, you know, their water. Um, they basically didn't even allow the Israelites to use day-to-day -day operations, which they had before the war. They pretty much now controlled everything. 
there was a, a portion of profit that had to go to the Babylonian government because they now ran Jerusalem. Right? It's all history. Verse 6. Jeremiah also recounts the foolish desire by many in Jerusalem who weren't listening to Jeremiah at the time saying, you better take this seriously. The Babylonians are coming and they blew him off and they imprisoned him. They wanted to hear the prosperity stuff from the false teachers and that got them in a lot of trouble. But they, what they tried to do, when you look at Egypt and Assyria, you have to understand that Egypt was to the southwest and Assyria was sort of to the northeast and when the Babylonians were coming, the residents of Jerusalem, instead of listening to God and listening to the prophets, what they did was they called up Egypt. Well, not on the phone. You know, they sent messengers and they sent, they tried to get mercenaries. They went to the Assyrians. Now, here's the weird thing is that the Assyrians were brutal. They were more brutal than anybody in that time period. They did, I don't even, I mean, I've read history. I don't want to go into the graphic things that they did to their prisoners. People would commit suicide before being taken over by the Assyrians. Here you are, supposedly a community of God's people that instead of going to God are going to the Assyrians for help against the Babylonians. See, that's the problem, folks. And the question for us is, if I said, what or who do we turn to in times of need? Well, the canned answer is, oh, God. But we should search our hearts. Do we always turn to God or do we look for allies in this world? You know, I was guilty of that back in the day. Well, this person could help me with that and this person could. It's good to have friends. But if I'm discounting God because he's not tangible and I'm trying to lean on people because they are tangible, my faith and my growth is lacking. I had to learn some hard lessons where God removed my allies. And he goes, I'm still here. (laughs) So it's a hard lesson to learn. Verses 7 through 9, again, the Israelites are even monitored by their new overlords. These Babylonians, different language, different uniforms, and they're patrolling the streets. And, you know, their their movement is limited. They have to sneak around if they want to go out to the woods or something. Um, maybe to tend their flocks, maybe to collect wood, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, folks, we've been in situations, maybe not as bad as this, that we feel uh, there's no way out. There's no way out. Those, uh, tell you what, those are the times that I, I, I pray to God even before I make decisions, even this thing with having service today. I'm like, Lord, is this smart? Is this, you know, we all prayed. My staff prayed, you know, um, I just pray, Lord, that you honor the fact that we want to show everyone around us that, that our God is bigger than fear and worry. But we get into situations that seem like impossible. And Jeremiah was in a situation that seemed impossible. So he was praying. Even kids that go to school, you know, their worlds, when, as they go through school, it could be a bully, it could be a learning disability. And, you know, to them, that's difficult. That's big. That's a Goliath. And I want to encourage to, from the very young to the very old to pray to God. Just keep praying to him. Trust him. And ask him for your help. Ask him for his help, <laughs> not our help. He doesn't need our help. Verse 10 through 14, the new normal in Jerusalem was a painful reality. Verse 10, it said that they had the hot skin of famine. Now, again, this is something that, you know, you look at, there's malnutrition after the war. There's probably some dehydration. There's 
um, maybe some unfortunately slave labor with the Babylonians, making them do stuff. And their skin is hot. Their, hot, their skin could be hot from the sun, um, from the famine, you know, food and water. It could be from infection. If you ever had an infection, your skin gets hot. Your body starts to heat up to try to fight that infection. So the health conditions, isn't this amazing how science catches up with the Bible? God's word says it, and then thousands of years later, with all our science, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's, that's how would Jeremiah couldn't have known that, but God knew it. So by the Holy Spirit, he wrote it down. Interesting. Verse 15, I'll read it again. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. Sometimes, folks, brothers and sisters, circumstances can break us. Let's be honest. You know, as a new pastor, I saw and you know, I watched some of the stuff on TV. I, I watched some other pastors. I thought as a pastor, you had to go up there and you had to portray like you were bulletproof and, and everything. And then I realized that's stupid. You know, I'm transparent. The people who come up here, we're transparent. We have problems just like you do. They might be different problems, but we, we go through those prayers. You know, we, we, and in our prayer time, we beg the Lord for things, or we ask the Lord to help us out of a situation, you know? So I like being transparent because then I could just be me. I don't have to pretend to be somebody else. And folks, we shouldn't pretend, especially as Christians. We should be honest with each other. Now, it doesn't mean tell everybody all your secret things because some people are gossips, but find that friend who you can trust and that you can share things with. Boy, it's such a relief when you can do things like that. Amen? Yeah. All right. So, you know, I, I hear people, well, people say, get over it and this and that. You know, we don't do that here. And, and also, we also have different thresholds as believers. Some of us have been through tra- uh, traumatic situations and we have a lower threshold for stress. So, you know, you and I tell people, you can come into church and you could have a, a, a sad face. You could not want to talk to somebody, uh, but just come to church, you know, get the word. Uh, maybe you will be encouraged by something that's said. You know, I don't see the value in putting on a fake smile. I don't think that's necessary. So Jeremiah says to God, now I find this humorous because he says to God, imagine... And we do this too, right? <laughs> and and we, we admire Jeremiah. He's so awesome. He wrote Lamentations and he wrote Jeremiah. What a great guy. And he was compassionate and he was passionate. But he's saying to God, if you read it, he goes, remember, Lord, look, as if God doesn't see what's going on. But haven't we done that? Lord, don't you see my situation? Lord, I've been praying for weeks and it's still there. Lord, I want to please you. So we do it too. I love this book. It's a little depressing when you read some of the actual things that happen, but you can identify with Jeremiah. And he's saying, God, remember, God, look. And we do that. I do that, Lord. I'm, I'm just driving in a car and there's nobody and people stay away from me because I look up sometimes. And, but thank God with the Bluetooth, some people can think I'm just talking on my phone, but I'm not. I'm praying, you know, and I'm begging God. Um, but that's a good thing because we do struggle. Lord, and what do, we, what do we want when we go through trials as Christians? We want him to see our situation and we want him to deliver us. Funny, isn't it? And sometimes we think because the population of the earth is, what, close to 8 billion? We have this idea that God can't multitask, you know, that he's concerned with the wars overseas, that he can't see our, he can see our problems. And he knows every thought that I have and he knows every tear that falls. 
because he's that type of personal God. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Some of you this morning, I, I got to say this, that you, well, maybe here, maybe watching on the live stream, you're terrified of coronavirus. You keep, oh my goodness, I can't turn on the TV. I think the, pretty much the kids' cartoons now are going to have the coronavirus. I don't know, but everybody, it's like, just shut the television. I have to follow this stuff because I have to, you know, we put it on our website. We have handouts. We have to tell you what the government and the health professionals say we should do. I mean, that's being a good under-shepherd. But, you know, people are afraid. They're, even Christians are afraid, and they're afraid to say they're afraid. People are fighting on Facebook over, you're not taking this seriously enough, you know. Yes, I am. You're, you know. It's getting crazy. It really is, and it's, it's unnecessary. Verse 16, it says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of... Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. Now, remember, Mount Zion was the place before the Babylonians broke through the walls where, where the temple stood. And they just probably had primitive sledgehammers. They had uh, catapults. They just smashed that building to smithereens. They, they looted the gold. They took the artifacts. And it just was crumbled. It was a wasteland. So there were foxes. There was wildlife. And... Um, was it Isaiah that I covered? It talked about Babylon and how the, you know, the, the wildlife would be there. And today, if you look at where Babylon is in Iraq, there are ruins and there's animals there. They're hanging out, you know, in the building. So God's word is always right. And the animals go when the people, when the people leave, the animals come and they take up residence there. So that's what's going on here. Interesting. So two out of three is the repentance from sin. And this is a sobering reality of why they're in this situation. And it was because of their sin and their parents' sin and, you know, these generations. Now, I named my son Josiah after King Josiah. I love Josiah. I mean, he just was such an awesome figure, historical figure in the Old Testament. And he, his heart was for the Lord and he... He, he did these reforms in Israel and in, in Jerusalem that a lot of the people didn't like. Why are you so upset in the apple cart? You're a political figure. You're not a priest. But Josiah had his heart for the Lord. And Jeremiah was there and saw Josiah's day. Josiah put all these reforms in place and he uh, smashed down all these idol worshiping places and these altars. And the people put up with Josiah a segment. A lot of them liked it because they, were, they loved God. But the ones that didn't just put up with Josiah until he died, and then they went back to their old ways. So it's a funny thing how you can, it's a, the age-old question, can you legislate morality? Yes and no. Um, there's a segment of the population that when that starts to happen, they get angry. They don't want to hear about it. But that president or that king, they'll eventually be out. Maybe we'll get somebody in there that we like. So Josiah did it, and, and Jerusalem was a great place to worship God. But then once he died, they started building the altars again because the other kings weren't good. So unfortunately for Jeremiah, he, he got to see the glory days of Josiah, but it didn't penetrate all the hearts. And then he got to see, as soon as Josiah died, how everybody, not everybody, how many of them went back to their old ways. So, you know, the funny thing about being a Christian is it has to penetrate on the inside. 
You know, I could, we could put on a show here. We can do religious things. We can wear vestments. We can do a lot of stuff, and it's just window dressing. Jesus slammed the Pharisees because that's what they did in the first century. Matthew 23, a whole chapter is, is, is dedicated to this external uh, facade of religiosity. It has to be in here. And when we become believers, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit guides us through our life. And it's not window dressing. It's, it's, it's in, that doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't let other people down. But it means that it, it goes from the inside out, not from the outside in. It never works that way. A lot of good stuff in here. Jeremiah seventeen nine through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every person according to their ways and according to the fruit of their doing. So we can put on a show for each other here, but the truth is it's only God who can see the inside, right? He told Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God wants to know what you're made of inside. He doesn't care how beautiful you are. He doesn't care what clothes you wear, what vacation. God doesn't care about that stuff. People do, but God doesn't, right? So the heart. Now, we're not talking about the four-chamber cardiac muscle that sits in the chest. We're talking about, because, you know, Hebrew, it, was a very, it still is a very expressive language. So the heart, when he speaks about the heart, he's speaking about the intellect, the emotions, and the will. What makes us us? What makes us unique compared to the other seven and a half billion people on the planet? God has designed each one of us with a uniqueness. We think differently. We reason differently. We come to different conclusions, right? And then sometimes we argue with each other because we're different from each other. Different isn't wrong. Uh, But it's also the place where sin can fester and estrangement from God and ferment ever so slowly, right? Sin is missing God's perfect standard. But there's more to it because sin tries to elevate self. Sin in our culture is, it's all about me. I'm my own God. Or we don't worship God and we try to worship what we say is a God, but really that God is made in our own image. Well, if I was God, I would do it this way. Well, none of us have those qualifications. (laughs) So we either worship the true God or we're really worshiping ourselves. Right? There's not a whole lot in between there. Sin causes suffering because what happens is it takes us away, missing the mark. God has this perfect standard, and he has a standard for us in the owner's manual to the human body and mind and spirit, and that's called the Bible. <clears throat> and when we do things against that, right, we get ourselves into trouble. And s- sin, <clears throat> you can trace all suffering back to sin. It's our own sin. I know I've done dumb things that have hurt me because I did sinful things in my life. Uh, It could be somebody else's sin. If you're a victim of a crime, you're minding your own business, somebody assaults you. Now you're suffering because of their sin. Could be a combination. It could also be just as a result of sin from our federal head parents in Genesis when they walked away from God and the world changed. The creation is fallen now because of sin. So sin can, there's many different ways that we suffer due to sin, but the good news is that we can repent. And I'm going to get to that. Verse 16, he says, the crown has fallen from our head. You know, a lot of people have different ideas, but you know, when when we look at the crown in, and I know it's different, 
when we look at the crown in the New Testament, we look at this in Revelation, right? Um, and there's a lot of scriptures that point to a soul-winning crown and the crown of life, and there's all these different crowns. You can't see it, but <clears throat> it's something that kind of God bestows upon us for being a faithful servant of his. And then in Revelation, I think it's the 24 elders in uh, chapter 4, they, they, they fall down before the Lord and they take their crowns and they put it at his feet. So it's kind of like the cycle of life in a spiritual sense. Everything goes back to God. You know, we have to be careful what we're holding on to in this life because it's not ours. Even our own bodies aren't ours. Everything goes back to the Lord. But in, in this situation, what fell? Well, their, their reputation, their authority, their influence. You know what fell? Their witness. Their witness. How they represented God to the Moabites and the, you know, the Egyptians and they weren't, it, it, Jerusalem was in such a spiritually decadent place that their crown fell. They lost that. And today, we can build up a reputation our whole lives and in one incident, ruin our entire reputation. It, that, that's kind of a sad thing. Um, we all want forgiveness when we mess up, but in some professions, especially being a pastor, one incident can ruin uh, a reputation that somebody's built up for 30 or 40 years. Right? And that only, that's the only thing that people remember. So uh, the crown that we wear is very important. But I, I submit to you this. When, when I pray about myself and how I handle things, my concern to the Lord is that I'm, I'm being a good witness. I don't care about my reputation. No matter what you do, you make a... Today, right? I, I got backlash on Facebook, right? Because well, you're not taking this seriously. You're having a service. It's like, just relax. You can, on your wall, you can... You can run around with your hair on fire. Leave me alone. You know what I'm saying? I got somebody who was upset with me and unfriended me uh, because of what I'm doing. And they went on a cruise. So this, it's like, you're confined with 3,000 people and you're, you're judging me? Go away. You know what I'm saying? Do that on your own wall. So I, I was a little bit nicer than that. I, I used facts. But well, I don't even know what my, my point was. <laughs> I went way off the subject. But, you know, people just, it's just, it's just a shame, you know, and, and I'll say this one last thing too, is that um, last Sunday, it's, it was almost prophetic. Before it got into this, you, you shouldn't have gatherings and such. I remember one of the things I said from the pulpit was when, when there's a crisis, there's two types of people that come out of the woodwork, hoarders and helpers. You know, if you, if you use the toilet paper example, if you had nothing left, I would give you one of my rolls. But the point is that people during this crisis, right, there, a lot of people are hoarding. They're, uh, they're, it, it's not just in one place. It's in several places. Literally, people are fist fighting. So you can't come to church. You can't do a lot of things. But you can go to a Costco in a big warehouse with a bunch of strangers you don't know and get real close and fight with them, and that's normal. So you're not going to spread anything that way. That's okay. Hoarding, stealing from elderly people, taking stuff out of their carts. Okay, I, I went off the topic again. <laughs> but you get the point. Human nature is weird, and people are acting very weird over this. We should be, as Christians, the voice of that calming influence. Yes, take precautions, but... Give it, give it up to the Lord. Trust the Lord with this. Amen? Okay. <laughs> so verse 17, it says that their hearts became faint and their eyes grow dim. 
That's interesting because everything's interesting in the Bible. I always say that. We can never truly be our best selves when we're in sin. And sometimes when we get into a deep sin, maybe one of them is a great estrangement from God. The thing that we thought, because we're not thinking straight, right? The thing that we thought would make us happy ends up destroying us. And you you can see that in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, I love when Christians repent. Like, I, I, I love to see even a high profile figure who falls from grace really has a serious repentance. And years later, they give their testimony and they talk about how, you know, the Lord lifted them back up again and they received forgiveness. And, and, and they'll tell you all the ways when you're in sin, you can't see that you're walking off a cliff. But when you walk off the cliff and break your, all your bones and then you are mended and the Lord brings you back, then you can recount how hindsight is twenty twenty. So that's a really cool thing. You can see these things actually taking place. But, but their eyes grew dim or their heart became faint and their eyes grew dim. Jesus said that the eyes are a window to the soul. Sometimes I, I, and people get uncomfortable. Someone will say to me, I'm like, hey, how you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm great. And I'm like, your eyes tell a different story. And they're like, yeah, pray for me. Like the eyes are the window to the soul. And you can see these metaphors that he uses to express that just their countenance and, and the glimmer and, you know, they start to lose their joy. Now, it comes back, but as Christians, you know, at any point in time, we could be going through a difficult time and maybe we just need a hug or a, a friendly ear or a non-judgmental non-judgment, encouragement. So that's right, non-judgmental. It's cool because I remember saying to the body on Facebook and in different places, I said to the church, if you come to church Sunday, no judgment. Well, I'd have to, I'd have to get judged too because I'm here. Um, if you don't come to church, because of what's going on, no judgment. And that's the way a church should be. We can read information, we can pray about something and come to different conclusions. Now, as long as it's not the conclusion about the deity of Christ, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, those are like the, the target, those are the important ones. But other things in First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses is Christians are going to have difference of, of opinion on a lot of things. And we shouldn't judge each other for that. Amen? I see this with diets and vaccinations and, oh, my goodness, Christians are at each other's throats over non-essentials. Just pray about it. Do what you want to do and stop imposing your will on everybody else. Why do we see the need to do that? I don't get that. Okay. Here's the good news. Well, before we get to the good news, this is like that, that graph I was telling you about. We're at the peak. Um, something else difficult to read, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one through 32. And then we're going to get to the, you know, the, the toboggan down the snow-covered hill, the fun part. So 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one through 32, the Apostle Paul says, If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. You know, and people do this. I, I taught a sermon, I should do it again, about, oh my goodness, 12, 13 years ago on judgment. The problem with the word judgment in the English language is if you look in the dictionary, there's a very broad semantic range. So in other words, um, you know, stand, right? I'm standing or it's a stand. There's two or three words that fit context. When you look at the word judgment, 
you find about 100 possibilities. Therefore, context is important. You know, the Greek is uh, krino, krisis, diacrino, diacrisis, anacrino. There's all these Greek words for the word judgment. And people say, you shouldn't judge. Correct. You shouldn't judge. I can't determine who's saved and who's not. I can't see into your soul. Um, I shouldn't judge based on your appearance, what you're wearing, what kind of makeup, how you wear your hair, whether you have tattoos or not, who cares? So we shouldn't judge based on appearance. But there are times in the scripture that we're supposed to judge shocking to some believers who haven't read the whole Bible. Here he's saying, Paul is saying, if we would judge ourselves, and this is more not like I'm damning myself, which makes no sense. He's saying if basically if we would judge or examine ourselves, we would not be judged. So basically if we deal with our own issues, there's less that the Lord has to chasten us about. And Hebrews, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it Hebrews 11, 12? I think it's 12. That the God chastens, he disciplines those he loves, right? When he loves us, he wants to make us more like his son Christ. And sometimes through chastening, we, we get there. So interesting part, Paul is saying this, but when you go back to Lamentations, the people came to the realization that they had messed up greatly. And they wanted God back in their lives. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I did a, a testimony last Sunday about Charles Templeton. They said he was going to be bigger than Billy Graham, but he let his lusts take him away from God. And for decades, he was estranged. He walked away from God. And then he was interviewed sickly and, and, you know, a few years from death. And when the interviewer brought up Jesus Christ, the man, Charles Templeton, started weeping uncontrollably. And he said, I miss Jesus. Now, I hope that he repented. Because if he did, I believe the Lord would have accepted him. That's what I believe is forgiveness, is repentance. It's wonderful. Too bad it took him decades to figure and come out to this conclusion. But when you know God, you can't unknow God. See, God is that type of entity. He's everything. When you know him, you can't unknow him. You can run from him. You could be mad at him. You could tell people, I don't believe anymore. But it's not true. You can't unknow God because he's God. It's like unknowing gravity. Well, don't jump off any roofs because it's not going to go well for you. Um, so these people came to this realization. It was like a mirror to themselves. There was, there was sin, there was but repentance, there was forgiveness, and there was restoration. Last few verses, 19. He says, you, O Lord, remain forever. You're thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. That seems so contradictory, but let's take it apart because it's really not. And it's a lot of times how we think. Three out of three is the request for uh, restoration. Again, mixed messages. Have you ever prayed, Lord, I pray that you're a mature believer. I pray that this happens. But then you pray, you know, Lord, there's a possibility. I've been praying for this for a long time, and it's just not according to your will. You're seeing something about this prayer. Now, I've seen that in hindsight, that you're not, you're seeing something about this prayer that I really want, but I'm not seeing that it's going to hurt me. So I'm praying for this to happen. You can do anything, God. I'm praying in faith, but it might not be your will. And if it's not your will, can you give me an understanding so I stop praying about this, but I'm settled with why I'm not getting this? And that sounds crazy talk, right? But it's not. Because we can pray a lot of things. I, I say this a lot. We, maybe when we go to heaven, God will show us a, a file cabinet with unanswered prayers. 
and we pick them out on every age that we prayed for something that didn't get answered. But under it is the answer why he didn't grant that prayer. And we realize, oh, my goodness, yeah, if I would have got that, that would have really hurt me. So I've prayed, Lord, I really, or the situation is like torturing me. Um, not literally. <laughs> Can you please make it go away? And it's not, and I don't know what he's doing. And I say, you know what, Lord, how about just help me to understand what your will is in this situation? I want to be in line with you. So you've heard the expression, prayer is not to get our will done on earth, but to get God's will in heaven. I'm going to tweak that. I would say prayer is not to get our will done on earth, but to get God's will done macrocosmically. In other words, macrocosm, big world. God answers prayer based on what's best for his eternal plan of salvation, what's best for uh, bringing people closer to Christ, getting people into the kingdom. You see what I'm saying? He's got a big job, and I'm just seeing a little pinpoint in my little puny life. So I want to know what his will is, because then I want to start praying in his will. You know, I had crippling panic attack and anxiety in 1999, to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't stand up here. I would, I, my heart would be racing. I couldn't breathe. It was terrible. I, would, I never want to go back there. And I prayed. It took a while to go away. It took years. And I was frustrated with the Lord. But now looking back, I realize, you know, that helped to mold me so I could be more compassionate. You know how many people I've ministered to with panic, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts? And I actually have the empathy. I have the compassion because I went through that because I experienced all that. Three o'clock in the morning, waking up in the middle of the night, my heart's racing. I go over to the Bible, I read, I take notes, and I still have those notes. And I was never so close to the Lord than when I was going through that trial. So this is what the prosperity gospel will not teach you. It doesn't go with their shtick. You know what I'm saying? This is the truth. We go through things. And this is a church where you can talk to people and say, I'm going through something and not be judged for it. So what you see here is a reflection of a lot of things that Jeremiah is thinking at the same time, verses 20 through 20, uh, 20 and 22, not through, verses 20 and 22, they're more visceral, they're more emotional, they're more uh, circumstantial, um, not particularly grounded in reality. And here's my question to you, and now that we're pretty much almost to the end of the book, is anybody shocked to know that Jeremiah is like you? <laughs> I see some heads, <laughs> heads turning. Um, maybe. <laughs> Isn't that a cool thing? Um, when you read the Gospels and you read the stubbornness, foolishness, talking out of turn of the disciples, that was what gave me the encouragement to do this. Because if I read about perfect people in the Bible, I would be like, that's not for me because I'm not perfect. But what I read was the men and women in the Bible are just like me. And they backslid and they um, let the Lord down and they got emotional about and said dumb things and had to ask for repentance. And I'm like, okay, I could do this because I'm no better than them. And they're not perfect. So Jeremiah loved the guy. Uh, can't wait to meet him. He's probably not. They call him the weeping prophet. He he's definitely hasn't been crying now for 2,500 years. It's been great. <laughs> but uh, I just want to encourage you with that. You're going through something this morning. Well, here's one of the greatest Bible, one of the greatest Bible writers who, who went through it too. Feelings to faith, feelings to truth. Um, in verse 19, he calls on the eternality of God. 
God is good. God never changes, and that's comforting. So, and we do this too. We get, we get upset. We're frustrated. God, don't you see? Don't you see my situation? But then we come back to, but I know who you are, Lord. Otherwise, and I say this, I'm driving in my car. I look up. I'm, I'm still looking at the road. But, <laughs> but there's times where I'm like, well, I'm like, at the end of the day, Obviously, I believe you're there and you're listening. Otherwise, I'm talking to my windshield and I need to be committed. So, say I use logic. Logic makes a lot of sense, right? That's good stuff. Uh, So, feelings to faith. uh, You know, if you're having a rough time today, go outside where there's UV rays and wind and you're healthy. And just take a walk and talk to the Lord. He hears. Two really neat encouraging scriptures, Isaiah 61, 3. God gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. So they had lost their joy, right? The joy of our heart has ceased. But God says, now this was contextual, but it's still true. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Joel 2.25, God says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And there were times that the locusts literally ate their crops. And God made crops grow miraculously. But he also was speaking about, you know, remember, they were an agrarian community. A lot of the metaphors to describe life's events were done through agrarian examples. Oh, yeah, I know what it feels like when the locusts come. There's millions of them. And when, by the time they're gone, nothing's left. Well, sometimes as Christians, we look at a situation, folks, and we say, this has been going on for months. And I feel like I've been eaten by locusts, Lord. I I feel like I'm a stalk of a person. I'm a shell of a person. I'm not happy. I've lost my joy. But God hears. And it's not going to last forever. Just keep. It's a formative process. Keep with him. Because even through those difficult times, as he restores you, You're becoming stronger spiritually. You're becoming closer to him. You're understanding that there are locusts in this world. And he's the only thing that can restore the years the locusts have eaten. If nothing else, when we take that step into the kingdom, oh boy. (laughs) The apostle Paul talked about it. The apostle John talked about it. And their words are just in black and white and it's moving. Wait till we experience the real thing. Amen. It's good stuff. So I was going to go into Second Chronicles, but I'm just going to read the end because now this is a different book written at a different time. And, well, I'll just read it quickly. Second uh, Chronicles 36, 14, different author, different time period, chronicling. Uh, it's more of a, on the spiritual end by the, the, the prophets and, and the priests and their perspective of what they saw, the good ones. Verse 14, moreover, moreover, all of the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed. They sinned willingly more and more according to the abominations of the nations. They were doing what their unsaved neighbors were doing, the horrible things they were doing. And defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem, the temple. Awful things were going on inside that place. God had to stop it. And the Lord God of their father sent warnings to them. Boy, that's love. God's like, listen, I don't want to have to do this. So here's prophets. And the prophets did miraculous things and they said incredible things and they still were ignored by the, the, the leaders and the people. So the Lord God of their father sent warnings to them by his messengers, raising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people. That's what warning is. It's compassion. You don't wait for them to fall off the cliff. You try to grab them from falling off the cliff. 
and on his dwelling place, but they mocked. So it's bad enough they weren't listening, but the leaders and some of the corrupt religious people were mocking the true prophets. The messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. That's a sad place when there's no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. Now, remember, I've said this all throughout this book for those of you that are new. There was a a controlled submission. They kept resisting and resisting, and the Babylonians became very hateful. And the suffering was not because of God, but was because of they prolonged this this war and there just was hatred on both sides they weren't listening and all the articles of the house of god and the temple great and small the gold the treasures of the house of the lord and the treasures of the king and of the leaders all these he took to babylon then they burned the house of god broke down the walls of jerusalem burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to babylon where they became servants to him. Daniel and his three three friends were taken to Babylon, right? Daniel and his three friends that we read about in the book of Daniel in one of the um, expatriations became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in verse 22, from verse 21 to verse 22 is roughly 70 years. And everything started to change. It became beautiful. Now, in the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, right? Babylons are out. Persians are in. That the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. He's a pagan king. He's a boorish, brash conqueror. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kings of the the earth and the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him, meaning the God of heaven, even though he wasn't necessarily a believer yet, a house at Jerusalem, the temple restored, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of his people? May the Lord his God be with them and let him go up. So, um, and you can find, I love archaeology. I put up some slides in the past, the Cyrus Cylinder, right? These things were found in, in palaces and such they were dug up found in the desert all these ancient writings that confirmed what the bible said i love this stuff there's so many triangulations here and uh cyrus god god his heart is in god's hand and he stirs him up and he has favor on the jewish people he lets them leave babylon go back to jerusalem build a wall build a temple clean up the rubble gave them money gave them a security detail who does that Well, Cyrus did. (laughs) So it was pretty neat. The sermon is titled Restoring the Years. And God did restore the years. He did restore the years. And the people sinned. And the people repented. You know what repent means? People get scared of that word. Repent! It just means to change. Turn to God. You don't have to be yelled at to repent. You could just do it. The Holy Spirit could convict you to repent. There's different forms of repentance. Somebody doesn't know the Lord, they repent and that they're they're not just going their own way in life. They actually turn towards the living God. That's a huge repentance, but it's a great thing. Christians do it probably daily. When we fail God and we realize it and we've sinned, we repent. We turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to try to change to be a better person. So repentance is not a scary word. After repentance, I mean, well, God forgives us, right? We know that. Um, Restoration. 
and, and he forgets it. He throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. And restoration is beautiful because sometimes you can look at life and go, you know what, I don't really even deserve. I des- People do this to themselves. They, they talk and there's a situation and they look at their past and they go, I don't deserve anything. And there's some people who do that. There's some people who think they deserve everything. And then there's some that beat themselves up. And then they see that God restores things in their lives. And, and they see that even that thing that, that was in their life, that it's just they can't not remember it. it they did something and it, it affected so many people. And um, God brings them to a restoration and it's beautiful. And he says, I, what, are you, what are you thinking about that for? I forgot about that. And we still hold on to it. And they look back and, and that's restoration. Look what God did. Oh, my goodness. My past life, but when I wasn't a Christian, all the way my, to my mid-20s, I look back and I'm like, every once in a while somebody comes in. Uh, they moved out of state, but um, I had somebody from college come and, and he's like, you're a pastor? <laughs> it was very funny. I'm like, shh, we'll talk afterwards. So, <laughs> but it was kind of funny. And uh, he's, he's like, they, him, his wife and his family, they, they listened to the sermon like, well, we're coming back. And they were here all the way until they moved. But, uh, you know, I just look back and I go, it wasn't because I'm great. It's because God is great. And folks, whatever you're going through today, you know, just give it to the Lord. If you have a broken heart, let him heal your broken heart. If you're in fear, give your fear up to him. Tell him in your quiet time, Lord, I'm terrified. I know Jesus said not to worry, but Lord, help to take this from me. If you've done something wrong, repent about it. You know, ask for that restoration. Ask for the, the years back that the locusts have eaten. And, you know, I, I kind of get a tear in my eye when I finish a book because I get so attached. I'm attached to Jeremiah. You know, he's just so wonderful and sweet and passionate. And, but the thing is, he's no better than you or me. You know, and... We're, we're, as you can see with all the hype that's going on, we're frail creatures and we need God and we need his love. And I just want to encourage you, to, whatever you're dealing with, just stay in there with him. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.